0: When it comes to the Ten Commandments, we are sometimes appalled at the fact that our world does not know them. I doubt that any kind of a significant fraction of the population could name even half of the Ten Commandments, much less in order. Sometimes it's rather appalling that our teenagers, our children, can't name the Ten Commandments uh, even in order whether we're talking about the short form or the long form so what about you are you able to name them all can you name them in order and can you give the long form in a way our lives depend on it As it tells us in Matthew the 19th chapter where Jesus was talking to the individual he said if you will enter into life keep the commandments Now, I point this out not to put anybody on a guilt trip because I think that many of us struggle with memorization. And it's far more important to know what they are and know what they mean and have them in the consciousness of our mind than it is to be able to technically give something out. Even Jesus, when he repeated The commandments, of course, he repeated the short ones for the most part, but he somewhat gave the the shortened form, in a way. I also realize that because of age and difficulty, some people are very good at memorization and some are not. The main thing is that we know what the commandments are. We're very conscious of them, that we know what they mean, and that we truly apply them in our lives and we need to be sure that our children our grandchildren know what the commandments are and what they mean as according to their maturity level some of them are a little bit more difficult to explain at least one of them a little bit more difficult to explain to children and when it comes to coveting that's another one that is a little bit difficult for them to comprehend exactly what that means but Nevertheless, our children and our grandchildren should know the commandments. And so, today's sermon is titled "The Second Commandment." <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Lyons, for saving me the time to have to read that. I will read it. But it's—it's uh, it's amazing sometimes how God does inspire you in certain ways. Uh, his ministry it doesn't always happen that way, but it is interesting how many times it times it does. And we're going to look at what the second commandment says and why it is imperative, that is of vital importance, that we know this commandment and carefully live by it. So let's turn over to it, Exodus, the 20th chapter, and verse 4. And we'll read it again. Maybe there's something here that God is trying to get across to us when he emphasizes something. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's a fairly lengthy commandment, isn't it? Uh, it's a little bit longer than you shall not kill or you shall not steal or you shall not bear false witness. It's a fairly lengthy commandment. And it's interesting that when we look at the commandments, there are two that take up more space than any others, the one against idolatry and the one against Sabbath-breaking, or the admonition to remember the Sabbath day and to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We call this the second commandment. But do you realize that for many people, this is part of the First Commandment. In fact, the largest majority of people that call themselves Christian on earth today look at this as part of the First Commandment. I brought a one of my favorite books. It's called My Catholic Faith. I'm not Catholic, by the way, but uh, it, it's in some ways like a comic book, but... Uh, <laughs> I say some ways, it's a, it's a very interesting book. It's a very revealing book to understand how certain people think. And I'd like to turn over here to uh, page 194. Uh, this is in this particular version. I like the book so much I actually have two of these books. Uh, they were two years apart, and there's some things in one that's not in the other, which is very, very interesting, but I won't, that's another story altogether. But here, under the Ten Commandments, here's how it lists the Ten Commandments according to Catholicism. Number one, I the Lord am your God, you shall not have other gods besides me. Number two, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The third commandment, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. And then honor your father and your mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's number nine. And number ten is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, it is interesting that it cites Exodus, the 20th chapter, for each of these commandments. But it's also interesting that if you look at Exodus 20, and we're going to look at uh, both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy, the uh, 5th chapter. But here in Exodus 20 and uh, verse... 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. But according to the Catholic version, the ninth commandment is, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then the tenth one is, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. But here it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So it reverses the order of what's there in Exodus, the 20th chapter. But at the same time, it divides it into two different commandments. Now, interestingly, if you go over to the book of Deuteronomy, the 5th chapter, the Catholic version actually takes Deuteronomy's order, although it cites Exodus. It's interesting that there are slight differences, or several differences, between the commandments in Exodus and Deuteronomy. If you go through the commandments in Deuteronomy, beginning in chapter 5, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. All through the first four... They are exactly the same as we find in the book of Exodus. But beginning in verse 12, Exodus commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But here in Deuteronomy, it has a different word. It says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then it adds something that is not in Exodus's account. As Lord your God commanded you. Obviously, that's a, a commentary, uh, as Moses wrote this, a commentary on God commanding them. He's adding that. It's not really adding anything to the commandment other than the fact of reminding who it was who told us to do it. Then, con- continuing in the fourth commandment, uh, here in Exodus... It says, uh, verse 10, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle. Well, in Deuteronomy's account, it just elaborates on cattle because, as it says here toward the end of, or the middle of, verse 14, Nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle. So it adds a few words there, which is delineating what it means by cattle. It's it's, uh, making sure that no one misunderstands what is meant there. And then verse 15 is entirely uh, apart from Exodus's account. Remember that you were a slave. I'm sorry, let me finish off uh, verse 14. It adds this as well at the end that your male servant, your female servant, may rest as well as you. And from that part all the way through verse 15 is an addition. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the eternal your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, clearly these are just additions in the sense of commentary. Commentary. Uh, To make clear what the commandments said, Moses knew exactly what the commandments were. He was the one that brought them down from the mountain. And we read the first four commandments and they're word for word the same. And the commandments that follow are pretty much the same. But I point this out because there are a few differences. And when we get to verse 21 in Deuteronomy, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. But Exodus says in a different order, it says, as we pointed out there, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. It begins with that, and then mentions his wife, your neighbor's wife. Now, isn't it interesting that Well, most things are the same. There are some subtle differences between the way that they're given. And why did Moses, who knew them exactly, reverse the order here? Well, it may have been by accident, but I don't think so. Whether Moses knew why he did or not, God certainly knew. Because in this we find that the Admonition against covening is not separated as though it's two different commandments. It's all one commandment. Let me read why they divide that commandment or their reasoning behind it from my Catholic faith. Uh, I'll begin in uh, page 195. It says, In the enumeration of the commandments of God to be found in the books of Moses, are the commandments definitely divided into ten? And then it gives the answer. In the enumeration of the commandments of God to be found in the books of Moses, there is no definite numerical division, although the injunctions are distinctly tenfold. So, in other words, we don't find in the books of Moses where it says one, two, three, four. It just lists them. And all agree that there are ten commandments. The question is, is the second commandment a separate one, what we call the second commandment a separate one, or is it part of the first commandment, and are we to divide the last commandment into two? It says the Catholic enumeration of the Ten Commandments differs from some of the Protestant enumerations. The Catholic division was in use in England till the Protestant Revolt. It doesn't call it Reformation, it says Revolt. It is still used, which probably is, is accurate, it is still used by most Lutheran churches. The Catholic system is based on the Hebrew text and principally on the enumeration made by St. Augustine, so it shows us a little bit of the source of this. It is adopted by the, was adopted by the Council of Trent. By it, the first commandment contains everything relating to false worship and false gods. Notice it doesn't say anything about idols or images. Just false religion and false gods, or false worship and false gods. The tenfold division is safeguarded by dividing the last precept regarding desire into one relating to sins of the flesh, and another relating to sins against property. But now when you say you should not covet your neighbor's house, and then you have wife in there, which is the sins of the flesh, and then you go back to his ox, his whatever, it's talking about, it's dividing that up in a very unnatural way. The tenfold division says, "Okay, against property, just as acts against purity are forbidden separately from acts against property." The English Protestant enumeration is based on Origen and others. Well, it's based on really what we read in the Bible. By it, the worship of graven images is numbered as the second commandment, and all the succeeding commandments thereby are advanced one over the uh, one over the Catholic enumeration. To safeguard the tenfold division, the last two commandments, as they call it, are grouped together as the tenth. It's rather interesting when you read that to see what the thinking is. But let's just stand back and let's look at the effect that it has. They list the commandments here, not in the long form, but in the short form. And when we list them in the short form, as they have it here, I, the Eternal, am your God. You shall not have other gods besides me. And that's it. What does it do? It effectively does away with the second commandment against idol worship or the use of idols. Now, isn't it rather interesting that those who use icons or images and idols for the most part, are the ones who number the commandments the way that this particular book does. Those who do not believe in the use of images or idols number it the way that we do. I wonder if there's any connection between any of that, or is that too cynical to consider? Because they effectively do away with the second commandment. And they have statues of Mary, crosses with images of what supposedly Christ looks like, as do some Protestant uh, groups. They have these things, and they do bow down before them. But as they would say, they're not really bowing down before them; they're uh, they're just uh, reminding them of what God looks like. That's always the And I'll read a little bit more of that in a moment here. For hundreds of years, especially in the 8th and ninth centuries, there raged a battle between those who accepted these objects and those who were called iconoclasts, those who rejected the use of images or idols in the worship of God. Those who are against icons, or idols, rightly, quote, feared that having an image of the thing before you, vision and devotion might attach themselves to the image and fail to press on to the thing for which the image stands. In other words, they recognized that if you are going to bow down and look at this image, this idol, then in reality it would become the object of worship not just what it represented. They, they understood that, and so they were against it. Roman Emperor Leo III launched an attack against the use of icons in 726 AD by openly declaring his opposition to them. John Mansour, better known as John of Damascus, came to the defense of the use of icons. This is from Erdman's Handbook to the History of Christianity, page 247. And I think it's rather interesting to see what it was that caused him to come to the defense of images and icons. He was the greatest theologian of the 8th century. He is recognized today by the Orthodox churches as the last of the great teachers of the early church, the so-called fathers. John explained that an image was never of the same substance as its original, but merely imitated it. An icon's only significance is as a copy and reminder of the original. Now, what what did he use for his justification of it? Was it Moses? No. His argument is based on Plato's notion that everything we sense in this world is really an imitation of the eternal. So he bases it on a philosopher, a dead one at that, long dead, but his arguments, he based it on Plato's notion that everything that we sense in this world is really an imitation of the eternal, which can be known only by the soul in the non-material world. That's from Erdman's Handbook of the History of Christianity, page two hundred forty seven. So in effect we have a choice to make. We can go along with John, not the Apostle John, but John Mansur, in the eighth century, uh, and the reasoning of Plato, or we can go to the scriptures and believe what God says. The weight of the commandment is quite significant. In the King James Version, the New King James Version, I counted 88 words for the Second Commandment. 88 words. The Sabbath Command has 98. That's in Exodus. Deuteronomy, it would be perhaps a few more. Although the part about in six days is left out, so you could, you can check the difference there. But the point is that it would be a different number in the Hebrew, but the emphasis is far greater on these two commands. If you look at the other commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not uh, bear false witness, uh, you shall not uh, covet. It's, it's fairly simple. The fifth commandment, as we understand it, on honoring your mother and father, is a little bit longer But no other commandments come even close to the emphasis in terms of the sheer number of words used to to explain them than the second and the fourth, the one against idolatry and the one against Sabbath-breaking. And yet, according to the Catholic version, we essentially do away with the second longest commandment and just wrap it up and say, you have no other gods before me, end of story. Nothing about images or idols. Why such emphasis on this command? Well, the Ten Commandments booklet, written by Dr. Meredith, on page 14, I'm sorry, page 13, begins. says, Man is incomplete, having cut himself off from the true worship of the true God. Yet he is to worship that God alone. You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. The second commandment tells us how to worship the true God. So it tells us how to worship the true God, what pitfalls to avoid in our worship, and of the continuing blessing or penalty that comes to our progeny as a result of the way in which we worship Almighty God. You see, when we worship God the wrong way, there is a penalty that is carried on, but three or four generations, just naturally so. God has has shown us that. And then it, the uh, blessing or a penalty that comes to our progeny as a result of the way we worship uh, Almighty God. And then it quotes the the uh, the commandment. Doctor Meredith goes on to say, the natural physical mind cries out for something to help in the worship of God. Physical human beings want some physical object, some aid to worship, to remind them of the invisible God. Yet that is exactly what is forbidden in this commandment. Uh, Jesus said, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Notice that it is only the true worshipers Who are able to worship the Father in spirit and truth. Many others attempt some form of worship, but because they limit their worship by a false concept of God, it's largely in vain. Now, that is a rather interesting statement where he says that the natural mind cries out for something to aid himself in the worship of God. It's interesting because here on page 200 and 201 in this book, I'll start reading from um, well a little bit down here. It says, "Is it right to show respect to the statues and pictures of Christ and of the saints?" That's the question. The answer is, it is right to show respect to the statues and pictures of Christ and of the saints, just as the right to show respect to the images of those whom we love on earth. We cherish photographs of our family and friends. We cherish and honor our national flag, not because of the cloth on which it is made, but because of what it represents. In a similar manner, we respect sacred statutes and pictures. And I love this statement. It says, The honor... That we pay sacred images and pictures is not idolatry because we do not adore them. Now, what's interesting, and I could show this to you afterward. I'll show it to you now, but I'm sure you can't read it. That's right here. I just read that we honor and we pay. Uh, we pay uh, sacred images and pictures is not idolatry because we are not. We do not adore them. And yet, right over here on the other side of the page, where there's a picture of a cross and various people there, it says, The adoration of the cross on Good Friday is part of the Holy Week devotions. The Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross is kept on September 14th. So we don't adore them, but we have a celebration called the Adoration of the Cross. We we don't, you know... Hello? Uh, I, I wonder who missed that one. God himself, after giving the first commandment, ordered the making of statues to be placed in the temple. And God cannot contradict himself. Sacred images do not promote false worship. Well, he's probably talking about the, the ark and the, the uh, caribin, but we don't worship the, uh, the ark or the But There is an empty space there, the mercy seat where there is no image of God. Now, there were caribans that were sewn on the curtains and different things like that, but that's not a part of the worship. It's different from bowing down to worship an image that is sitting on the mercy seat. These differences may be subtle, but they're very important. Some of the benefits we derive from the veneration of sacred images are, A, through them effective and sometimes supernatural, graces are obtained. There have been instances of miraculous pictures and statues as well as crucifixes. The bleeding image of one sort or another, or taking the cross and sprinkling water on someone and supposedly a demon is cast out or a person is healed, or any number of things like that. So they look to those things, and down through history we have many different things that they have looked to as being of some sacred nature, some physical object, a cross, or a statue, secondarily. They help us avoid distractions while praying by fixing our attention. Yes, they fix our attention, all right, on An image that doesn't look anything like God. Now how can that, how can that help us, help our attention when we're looking at something that is totally different from what God is like? They serve as a silent admonition to encourage us to imitation. When you look at what these images and idols look like, does anybody really want to be the kind of man that you picture in the way they portray Christ? Rather effeminate. Should we all have long hair? Back in the the 60s and 70s, remember the hippie movement? And they all wanted to have long hair like Jesus, or at least some of them. That was one of the rationales behind it. Which, by the way, they had a symbol back then that was very common. It was a circle with an upside-down broken cross. I see sometimes even... Our young people have that. It's a broken cross, an upside-down broken cross. They don't understand what it means, but it supposedly is about peace. Is that the way that peace is going to come? I think we need to understand some of these things that we do. Uh, people do things out of ignorance. They don't know. But as parents, we need to teach them where some of these things come from. And that whole hippie movement, anything associated with it, we ought to want to flee from. My wife and I went to Glastonbury over in, in the UK. I, I, I remember Dr. Winnale mentioned it once or twice or written about it or something. There's a, a church there that supposedly Christ came to. And so I thought, well, let's just pull off there because it was just off the highway. Let's go and check out Glastonbury. We, we started driving through the little town there. And my wife didn't even want to stop. Uh, we, we were a bit conspicuous we actually looked normal. Uh, now, if we'd had one of those round drums that are about that thick, you know, and beating on it, and we had uh, something in our, you know, flowers in our hair, a wreath in our hair, and maybe tie-dyed uh, clothing, we might have fit in okay. But it's kind mm-hmm. of a leftover hippie uh, a commune in a sense. They have a big festival there each year. It usually ends up raining at that time, and they end up in the mud but it's a, it's a big, uh, it's kind of like a Woodstock uh, English style, and about the same effect. And they have drugs, and they have all that sort of thing, and they've got the peace symbol. And all, all the things that come out of that whole era that we ought to not want to be a part of. It says here that uh, they are wonderful means for instructing the faithful in religion. The greatest artists in the world have been Catholic artists. Their greatest manuscripts treat of religious subjects. Even the most unlettered can understand a picture. Do we honor Christ and the saints when we pray before the crucifix, relics, and sacred images? See, it's not just the crucifix but and not just images, but relics, which can be a piece of the cross, supposedly. Uh, We honor Christ and the saints when we pray before the crucifix relics and sacred images because we honor the person they represent. Is that so? Who was it that said that we're not to use images and idols? We're not honoring him. We adore Christ and venerate the saints. No, I thought we were adoring the cross because there's the adoration of the cross. Our actions should always conform to the faith implied. Now, um, let me skip down here. Uh, they, they think we should have these in our homes, all over the place, and it's the image of his sacred heart is exposed. Uh, above all other sacred representatives, as representations, we venerate the crucifix most. It is the sign of our redemption. And it, it talks here about how um, that the natural mind goes to the worship of uh, these objects. Going back to page 195, it says, God has imprinted the substance of the Ten Commandments in the human heart and mind, and they have therefore binding force. Even if they had never been revealed, we should still be obliged to keep them, for they are dictated by reason and taught by natural law. In other words, the commandments are just naturally in our mind. Now, I know the Apostle Paul said that even the Gentiles do some of the things they understand it by nature which we should not murder and steal and commit adultery there are certain things that are actually in the minds of human people but Dr. Meredith said that it is natural to want to use an image or an idol uh, this book says that keeping commandments is just naturally there There are 95 verses from Leviticus to Revelation that contain the word idols. There are 13 verses that contain the word idol. Now, since the word is used more than once in a verse, in all, if you take idol, idols, images, there are 171 verses that refer to them and 188 Times where one of those three words is used, and all of those times, you can only find two verses and uh, three times where it is not used in a clearly negative sense. It's always in a negative sense, except for two verses. Let's notice those two verses over here in First Samuel, the sixth chapter. And I say clearly in a negative, uh, negative way. This was after the Philistines had taken the ark. Now the ark of the eternal, verse 1, 1 Samuel 6, verse 1, the ark of the eternal was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and diviners, saying, so they called for these pagan uh, priests and diviners, saying, What shall we do with the Ark of the Eternal? Tell us, how shall we send it to its place? Now, they had problems. They were afflicted in the posterior. It's a very nice way to put it. Um, as well as mice overrunning them. And they realized, We need to get rid of this object that the Israelites, uh, we stole from them. So they said, these priests and diviners, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Verse 4, Then they said, What is the trespass offering with which uh, we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats. Well, let's say it the way that apparently the uh, the the sense of of it is uh, five golden hemorrhoids and five golden rats. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images. Now, here's one of these places: images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as Egyptians harden their hearts? So, we've just read the only two verses, verse, verses 4 and 5, where we find the word images uh, used in a, <laughs> can we say a positive sense? Rats and the other? Is that positive? That, that is the closest we can come to any positive use of the word image or idol or idols. And I, I would dare say that this is not exactly a positive use of it, but I, you know, full disclosure, we should give at least the best attempt we'd come to a positive use of that particular, uh, word or words. So let's notice a few of the verses that admonish us against the use of idols. I think that we're all familiar with many of them, but I'm I'm just going to read a few of the 171 verses. Um, Probably not more than 135, but Leviticus, the 19th chapter. Yes, we've got time for a few. Leviticus 19, verse 4. It says, do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Eternal, your God. So, not only do we have the Ten Commandments, but we find that constantly God is saying, don't do this. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. They represent God, but don't make them if they're molded. Or any other kind. Let's notice the 26th chapter. And in verse 1, this is where we have the, the blessings and the curses of obedience to God. And he starts out, the very first thing he says, You shall not make idols for yourself, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar you shall rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the eternal, your God. And then he mentions the Sabbath. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the eternal. Then he describes the blessings of obedience. So isn't it interesting that the very first thing he says is don't use idols, and the second thing is remember my Sabbath days to keep them. So of the Ten Commandments, the two that he spent the most time on in the writing of them we find here, are the ones he mentions before he tells the blessings. And then, in verse 14, he says, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, so not just those two, but all of them, of course, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, then it goes on with all of the penalties that are going to be uh, placed upon uh, Israel and upon God's people all the way down through time, for that matter. Let's look at some examples of disobedience. Go over to 1 Kings, the 21st chapter, 1 Kings 21. And this is talking about Ahab. 1 Kings 21 will begin in verse 25. It says, There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the eternal because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. She was the daughter of a priest, and a pagan priest. And if you actually look at the whole history there, she corrupted several generations of kings, both Israel and Judah. But she stirred him up and he sold himself to do wickedness. Verse 26, he behaved very abominably and following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Eternal had cast out before the children of Israel. So when it describes the abominations that he had performed or uh, followed, the, the thing that mentions specifically are idols. I don't know if you've ever been to museums where they show some of the ancient icons or images, sometimes they're, a lot of times they're very small, but rather abominable idols that they, they worship. Not all that different from what we see in religion today, especially uh, when we look at uh, what is considered to be Mary. And some of them are quite striking, uh, very similar uh, to what she uh, has been portrayed as. Second Kings 17 2 Kings 17. And oftentimes there's a very strong sexual connotation to these images or idols. 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 11. Now this is where the house of Israel went into captivity. And why did they go into captivity? Well, let's start verse, uh, let's go back to verse uh, 9. And the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God, Things that were not right, and they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city, verse 10. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the eternal to anger. For they served idols, of which the Eternal had said to them, You shall not do this thing. So we see that that had a lot to do with why they went into captivity, setting up false gods, setting up images and idols that they bowed down to. Notice Second Kings 21. Here was Judah's king Manasseh, who reigned for 50-some years, and uh, did very abominably. And as a result, Judah went into captivity. Even after Josiah's reign, uh, they didn't fully come out of that, and so they went into captivity. But Manasseh had a lot to do with God saying enough is enough. But here in Second Kings, the 21st chapter, beginning verse 10, And the Eternal spoke by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Eternal God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears it, both his ears will tingle. So this is the result of his idolatry. I know that you know these things, brethren. This is not something that's new to any of us. But Sometimes it's good to simply be reminded. God warns us so much against idolatry. We have so many admonitions against it in his word that we really should take notice of it. Down in uh, the same chapter... Uh, verse 19: Ammon was 20 year, 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haraz of uh, Jotba. Now it's interesting. Somebody, I forget which one of our ministers mentioned this, not terribly long ago. Uh, it is interesting that I'd never really thought about it. But why does it always mention the mothers of? Not always, but many times it mentions the mothers of the kings. Well, when you think about it, what were the kings doing? Well, they had multiple wives oftentimes. Do you think they really had time to take care of 70 children? Or even, the the, you know, 10 or 12? Who was it that raised them most of the time? It was the mothers. And this explains why you have one king, and then you have a bad king, and then you may have a good king. They weren't following their fathers in many cases. They were following their mothers. And it shows the power of motherhood and the importance of motherhood in teaching our children. We know that fathers also must be involved in the training of our children. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the things that we learn, probably the majority of things we learn, we learn from our mothers. They spend much more time with us, especially in the early years. Say please. Say thank you. Not that our fathers don't do the same. They do that as well. But it's the mothers that are always talking to them. And who is it that often teaches them about God? Now, I know that fathers should be a part of that. They really need to be a part of it and teach them to pray, children, small children. But oftentimes it's a mother who's there doing it. And we see this, uh, where one king is a good king and this bad king back and forth, and the mothers, no doubt, had a powerful influence on them, because because right after this we have Josiah coming along, and he is a very different king than Manasseh and Ammon. But Ammon was 22 years old, and he did evil on the side of the Eternal as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. So he followed that same way. But what was the influence behind all of this that was there? He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and uh, they, they, they killed him. But verse 21 shows that he served the idols that his father had served. They were still there. They continued one generation after another. Now, there were always leaders who had the courage to push back against these evil practices, again in part probably because of their mothers. Not always, but probably that had a, a great influence on them. Let's notice First Kings 15 and verse 12. First Kings 15 and verse 12. And this is Asa. And I want to point out something here in verse 12. Asa banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. So Asa turned things around. He went a different direction than Abijan. And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed the idols. Very often... Very uh licentious sexual uh acts were performed in the worship of these idols. So we have the Sodomites and the idols being banished by Josiah. Uh, let's notice I'm sorry, by Asa. Let's notice Josiah over in Second Kings twenty three. That was Asa who did that, but Second Kings twenty three we read about Josiah who came along after Manasseh and Ammon. Verse 24. It says, Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the work, words of the law which were written in the book. That Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Eternal. Now the point is that in both these cases we find that idols are accompanied by other sins. One sin leads to another sin. It is interesting that it is you can see that even in life. We had a uh, a uh, member of Parliament in Canada many years ago when I first went to Canada, and he was quite prominent. He was an open homosexual. And he was always unhappy on the news about something. But he went to some sort of a trade show where they had a lot of expensive jewelry, and they got him on camera lifting a ring or something, a very expensive piece of jewelry. Now the RCMP would have probably arrested you or me, but in this particular case they gave him chance to return it. But it was the end of his career. And I thought it was rather interesting because sin leads to more sin. Not only did he have one problem, but it created another problem. His lust for different things. He coveted something that didn't belong to him. He he probably could have bought it, but instead he, he tried to take it. When we read of Asa and Josiah, with Asa, it mentions sodomites and idols. With Josiah, the wizards, the spiritists, and idols. So we should note that sin accompanies idol worship. In Ezekiel, the 20th chapter, I know that many of our old-timers know this, but some who may be newer may not be aware of it. But in Ezekiel, the 20th chapter, it shows why Israel went into captivity, what their rebellion was, going all the way back to the time when they were in Egypt until they were taken into captivity. And here we have some of the elders of of Israel coming and speaking to uh, uh, Ezekiel, wanting to uh, get advice. and Verse 5, God told Ezekiel, Say to them, Thus says the Eternal God, On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand and oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand and oath to them, saying, I am the Eternal, your God. On that day I raised my hand and oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Verse 7, Then I said to them, Each of you, throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Eternal, your God. Get rid of those idols. That was when they were still in Egypt. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. This while they're still in Egypt. But I acted, verse 9, for my namesake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, and in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 10. Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my sabbath to be assigned between them and me. Now, it's interesting, verses 11 and 12, if you think about it, he says, when they, he brought them out, and he brings them to Sinai, and he says, and I gave them... My statutes, and showed them my judgments. In other words, these things were in effect before they got there. These were God's statutes, His judgments. As we read back in uh, Genesis, where Abraham obeyed God's voice, what was that uh, I was is 20 25, I think it is or 26 Genesis 20 26, uh, where it says. uh Yeah, verse, verses 4 and 5. Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That shows that God had laws in effect at the time of Abraham. Statutes and laws. And so when we read back in Ezekiel, the 20th chapter, I gave them my statutes. In other words, it's, the sense is that God had these things. This was God's way of life, and he just revealed them to the Israelites who have been slavery and have been worshiping their idols and doing all those things, which a man does, he shall live by them. I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me. Verse 13, yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments and greatly defiled my Sabbaths. And as you go through here, he talks about not only idols, as we've already seen, but Sabbaths. Sabbaths especially are emphasized here. Notice verse 16, where it mentions both. It says, Because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my Sabbath, Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. And so what you find here is time and time again in this chapter, where he says they they broke my Sabbaths and they went after idols. Those are the two reasons, the two primary reasons the two largest commandments. And he shows that those are the ones that they broke. It's not only the Old Testament, but it's the New Testament as well. In Acts, the 15th chapter, Acts 15, we have the situation with circumcision, the question that came up concerning that. And there were a number of other things that went along with that. But, they ruled, down in verse 19, says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Those were very common practices among the Gentiles in the early uh, years of the first century that they were dealing with. And so while they did not have to become circumcised so they could become a Jew first and then they could become a good Christian afterward, uh, he's saying here that there are certain things, and, and some try to say, well, this does away with all the commandments. Well, it doesn't say anything about um, you know, murder and, and all kinds of other things, which obviously we know are correct. It's focusing on certain issues there that apply to the Gentiles. Over in 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, 1 Corinthians 8, we find that one of the issues that Paul had to deal with with the Corinthians was idolatry and things that were offered to idols. Chapter 8, verse 1 now, concerning things offered to idols. These were sacrifices of flesh, in other words, animal sacrifices offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. He says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, but that there is no other God but one. Now, I'll leave this, the rest of this for someone to give in a at, because I'm running out of time. Chapter 10. Starting in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The Gentiles who were called there, who had come out of a system of idol worship, he's telling them to flee from it, to stay away from it. I speak as the wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And then he said, Observe, Israel, after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Verse 19. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Yes, there is something that's behind the idol. It's the spirit that inspired it. It's the demon power that's behind it. They sacrifice the demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And again, you can read the rest of this, and we could have a sermonette on the subject of the whole chapter of the full meaning. I'm just trying to point out here that idol worship was a problem there in the first century. And here it shows that when they were involved in idol worship, there was a demon, oftentimes, if not always, behind it. Notice Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32, and verse 17. This was a song of Moses. He read this psalm or spoke these words of this psalm. And he says of Israel, he says verse 17, they sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that their fathers did not fear. So as they moved out of Egypt and to other lands, they began to take on other idol worship, but notice it says demons, spirit powers, nothing to play around with, nothing to, to fool with. At the very end, men will not repent of the sin of idolatry notice that in Revelation 9 and verse 20 Revelation 9 this is after the uh, fifth and sixth uh, trumpet or seals. Let's see trumpets it is Revelation 9 we have the first six trumpets having been blown and then in verse 20 Said, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. But the first things that it mentions there is demons and idols and images of wood and stone and so forth. Now, there are common ways that people use idols today that could be a problem for some of us. I doubt that any of you are going to bow down before a statue of Mary. I'm sure that some of you have in the past. Some of you must have come out of that background. But you repented of that, and God forgave that, and there's, you're, you know, worse sinner than anybody else. God has forgiven that. He, he wiped the slate clean. I don't think that any of us are going to to do that but in the these things about idols we're not to make any representation one of the ways that uh we can be affected by it is in pictures we've all seen pictures of what Christ supposedly looked like there, there's one with it I, I better not give examples I'm trying to keep it out of my mind but Do you still have trouble? I do from time to time. When I get down on my knees and I start praying, do you ever have, even if it's in a vague way, picturing Christ the way that you saw growing up? I I hope you don't, but I I, I have to say that I, I have to fight to keep that out from time to time. And so it's easy to then think, okay, well, Christ looked like a typical Jew of his day, which I have no idea what a typical Jew of his day looked like. But I think of maybe a shorter, stockier individual. But God gives us how Christ looks today in Revelation, the first chapter. And that would be far better for us to picture him that way. Because any picture that we have is going to be a false picture. Now, the people of Jesus' day knew what he looked like. And that was a, that was what he really looked like then. But anything that we have today is a far cry from what he looked like. You know, we know he didn't have long hair. It's a sin for man to have long hair, uh, as, as Paul tells us. It's an offense to God for us to do so, although you do have the <clears throat> Nazarite vow and, you know, a few things like that. But basically speaking, we know that, that Jesus was not a Nazarite. He came from Nazareth. And people get that confused, and that's why they think that, I guess, he had long hair. But we we should not look to effeminize pictures of Christ or crosses with him on it. Now, we were more righteous in my family, not that we were very religious. But I was always told that Catholics, you know, they put the picture of the dead Christ on the cross, we picture the resurrected cross, an empty cross. That's the way I was told. We, we, we have an empty cross because Christ was resurrected. Whereas Catholics and some other groups, they have an actual image of Christ on that cross. But I think that the one area that most people would have the most difficult when it comes to idolatry, uh, or one of them, in a physical way, and this is one of the easiest things to, to get rid of, is the cross itself? People think that if you're a Christian, you should have a cross. Uh, who's that the guy that advertises my pillow? He's always wearing a cross and you have somebody on Fox and Friends, a lady from South Carolina. she's often wearing a cross. You have uh, you know various people wearing a cross because they think that that makes them Christian, or it shows the world that they're Christian. Now if Christ had been hung, with a rope, would we be wearing a, a rope? Or if we've been shot with a, you know, 44 Magnum, would we have a 44 Magnum on a chain? I, I don't think so. So why do people use the cross that way? Uh, quoting from the Two Babylons, that which is now called the Christian cross was originally no Christian emblem at all, but was the mystic Tau of the Chaldeans and Egyptians. The true original form of the letter T, the initial of the name Tammuz, which actually is mentioned in scripture in a negative way, that mystic Tau was marked in baptism on the forehead of those initiated in the Babylonian mysteries and was used in every variety of way as a most sacred symbol. The mystic Tau, as a symbol of the great divinity was called the sign of life. It was used as an amulet over the heart. It was marked on the official garments of the priests of Rome. It was borne by kings in their hand as a token of their dignity or divinely conferred authority. It's talking about this as pre-Christian. The vestal virgins of pagan Rome wore it suspended from their necklaces as the nuns do now. The Egyptians did the same as the Egyptian monuments bear witness. You have the, uh, I forget what they call it, but it has a little loop at the top, the cross there. There is hardly a pagan tribe where the cross has not been found. The cross was worshipped by the pagan Celts long before the incarnation and death of Christ. It was worshipped in Mexico for ages before the Roman Catholic missionaries set foot there. The cross thus widely worshipped, notice worshipped, or regarded as a sacred emblem was the unequivocal symbol of Bacchus, the Babylonian Messiah, For he was represented with a headband covered with crosses. They ate fish and engaged in orgies. From her name comes the English word salacious. It was Aphrodite Salacia. Comes the word salacious which means lustful or obscene. Also from her name comes the name of our fourth month, April. In later centuries the Christian Church absorbed this tradition by requiring the faithful to eat fish on Friday. And it says, in Scandinavia, the great goddess was named Freya, or Fry. Fish were eaten in her honor. The sixth day of the week was named Friday, after her. Isn't that interesting, the the connection between eating fish, the name of the the actual day, and the great mother goddess? In the Middle East, the great... The goddess of Ephesus was portrayed as a woman with a fish amulet over her private parts. The fish symbol was so revered throughout the Roman Empire that Christian authorities insisted on taking it over with extensive revision of myths to deny its early female genital meanings. Sometimes the Christ child was portrayed inside the vesica, which was superimposed on Mary's belly, and, well, that's probably enough of that. We, we see these symbols that go along with religion. And I think that there could be people that have used some of these things and did it in ignorance to the pure. All things are pure. They don't know what they're doing. But it shows just how easy it is for symbols and Images and idols and all that sort of thing to creep into the worship of God. And so God, God tells us in his second commandment, he tells us how to worship God or how not to. He says, when you worship me, don't use images, don't use idols, don't use all these representations because it is a slippery slope. It leads to other things. Mankind has worshipped idols and images for millennia, and they will continue to do so, as we read in Revelation, all the way until Christ returns. Yet these poor representations of God limit his greatness. God can't be made in some sort of image or likeness. They distort our understanding of God. Idolatry is a slippery slope. It's easily fallen into. And it leads to other sins. This is why one point of the great code, the greatest code ever given to mankind, is that we are not to make any images or likenesses of God when we worship, and certainly when we worship him. He will not be reduced to an image or an idol.